Mm. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Oh, wow. Okay. That's great. You can also do it online if you'd like. You can get on Callie Harbin's Wi-Fi, scan the QR code in front of you, and you can get a digital copy there on your phone. But we've got paper as well. So, um, but yeah, so, okay. So a few weeks ago, we, we dove into this study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And, and what we're doing as opposed to approaching a series from a topical standpoint, which we also do regularly, in this particular case, what we're doing is we're going verse by verse through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And the beauty of that thing is, is you just get to, to, to pull out exactly what God has. You don't, I don't skip anything. And we just go verse by verse, line by line, and we just see exactly what God has to say for us. It's a, it's a, it's a fun way to go about it, and it's a way to where you actually begin to start covering some things go, doing it this way that you may not cover if you do it topically, because it just may not be the popular thing, or it may not be in vogue, or it just may not be the, where you're feeling led. But you can't help yourself when you're going about it this way. And so that's, that's what we're doing. We're going verse by verse, and, and we don't have tons of time to review what we were doing last week. If you, didn't, uh, if you weren't able to make it last week, I encourage you to get caught up. We've got the, you've got the ability to do that now on Spotify and other streaming platforms like that on our website, different places. I encourage you to do that. But we did make it through verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 1 last week after two weeks. We made it through a verse. And so we're, we're really cooking now. And, and so what we, what we did was we had, we had attempted to kind of get a handle on this greeting that Paul uses in all of his letters, every single letter that Paul writes, he, he says this thing of, of grace and peace every single time. And so we spent some time studying that. And, and God was also teaching us through verse 1 that God wants us to know him as Father, and he wants us to know him as Lord. And that's essentially where we left off last week. But, it, but again, I, I want to emphasize, like we've already covered in this study, the book of 1 Thessalonians is in our Bible to prepare us for the coming of the Lord. And for a group of people like ourselves that's living in the last of the last days, I believe that what we're learning through this book is as relevant to us as it's ever been for any group of people that's ever lived. Because I believe we are close to the Lord's return. And in every single chapter of this book, at the end of the chapter, we see a reference to this thing of the Lord's return. He's coming back, and you've got to prepare for that. And, and, and that's one of the reasons I've been so excited to, to study this book with you guys. But, but, but this morning, we're going to be looking at what, what I'm calling the model church, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians 1. What it does is, is it describes for us the model church. In fact, verse 7 of chapter 1 says that the, that the church of the Thessalonians was an example or, or an example to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, which is modern-day Greece, and, and that every place their faith was spread abroad. So this church was the model or example to all of these other believers and to all of these other churches. And, and of course, unbelievers were also hearing the things that were going on in Thessalonica 
as well. But, but before we dive into some of these specific ways the church of the Thessalonians is described in this chapter from verse 3, I do want us to see first and fo- first what, what verse 2 is trying to teach us about prayer before we get there. This is the, this is the model church, and we're going to see some of the characteristics of this model church But before we get there, Paul has a little something to say to us about prayer. And what I want us to see is the particulars of their prayers. That's that's number one on your study sheet, the particulars of their prayers. Now, now the way Paul, Silas, and Timothy are are recorded praying in this verse, it's, it's, it's not the only way to approach prayer, and this wasn't the, the only way that they prayed, but every time they did pray, what we see in these verses was included as at least a portion of their prayer. And, and specifically, Paul approaches it the way that he does in these verses so often in the Bible that I do believe it's something that's valuable for us to take note of. So like we, like we covered last week in verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy have just said, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then pick up with me in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to 1 Thessalonians 1. We'll have it on the screen, though. He, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they've just said, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And, 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 and here's what I want you to see specifically as it relates to verse 2 where we see these, these prayers that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are, are making. The, it says... I want us to see the the nature of their prayers. That's letter A in your outline. Here, What I want you to see about their prayers, first of all, is I want you to see the nature of their prayers. And when we come before God in in prayer, there's certainly a lot of requests that we can make. There's a lot of different roads we can go down, and there's plenty of things that we can ask God for. But the nature of their prayers here wasn't that the nature of their prayers was thanksgiving that was the nature of their prayers verse 2 says they gave thanks to god the next particular of their prayers that i want us to see is letter b the subject of their prayers would you look at the subject of their prayers the the subject could have easily been about avoiding persecution which would have been really hard to fault them for praying for but it could have easily been that. It could have been about a wide variety of things that had everything to do with themselves, but the subject of the prayer was, was people. It was other, other people. It, it was the church of the Thessalonians, to be exact. Next, I, I'd like you to see, let her see, the perspective of their prayers. The perspective of their prayers. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, man, they could have prayed about a wide variety of temporal things. I'd imagine, if, I'd imagine if we had their living and financial situation going on that we probably wouldn't have a whole lot of trouble with coming up with a lot of temporal topics to bring before the Lord. These guys were not rich. 
The, but, but that's not what they're praying about, was it? No, they, they were thanking God for the people of the church of the Thessalonians and remembered specifically, and according to verse 3, never stopped remembering the Thessalonians' work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. You see, their perspective was the eternal. And they had an eternal perspective in their prayers. They weren't focused on the temporal. They were focused on the eternal. They weren't focused on the physical. They were focused on the spiritual. And then the last thing I want you to notice about the particulars of Paul, Silas, and Timothy's prayers from this passage is, is letter D, the consistency of their prayers. You know how it can be. You, you know, you tell somebody, hey, I, you know, that you're going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. And you do that a time or two, and then a month goes by, and you're like, oh, man, I haven't even thought, of, I haven't even thought about that. I hadn't even thought about that thing again. You forget, and then you remember to pray again. But, but that's not how these guys rolled. Verse 3 says that they remembered without ceasing. And verse 2 says they prayed for them always. So there was a whole lot of praying going on. And every time they prayed, all the things we just went through were the particulars of their prayers. Now again, I'm sure they prayed for more than just those things, but those things were included every single time that they prayed, and that's not some sort of unique thing for Paul. That's not some sort of random rogue verse that we see in the Bible. We didn't just catch him on a good day. In, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3, he writes to the church at Philippi, and he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And in these verses in Philippians, we see the exact same nature, subject, perspective, and consistency of Paul's prayer. This is a consistent way that he prays. This is how he expressed the same sentiment in Romans chapter 1 in verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. And again, the nature of the prayer is thanksgiving. The subject is people. The perspective is eternal and the consistency is always or without ceasing. And this is a way of life for Paul. This is how Paul approached prayer. Now, I want us to just get real honest for a second as we look at that example that Paul said in his prayer life. And I want us to just get, get honest for a second and compare Paul's example in the particulars of his prayers to the way that we typically pray. So, so if we just went through that same list that, that we did with Paul and we were honest and we asked ourselves, what is the typical nature of my prayers? I'd imagine that there's not a whole lot of thanksgiving that's going on. It, we'd have to say supplication, which is pleading or asking God for something, is the typical nature of our prayers. And, and if we were honest and we asked ourselves, what's the typical subject of my prayers? I'd imagine there's not a whole lot of other people <laughs> 
included in those prayers, but that that subject is most likely exclusively ourselves. And if we were honest and we asked ourselves, what is the typical perspective of my prayers? I'd imagine there's not a whole lot of praying about the things that are eternal or the things that have to do with the Word of God and the souls of mankind, but that the perspective is almost always temporal regarding the day-to-day things that don't last. And if we were honest and we asked ourselves, what is the consistency of my prayers? I'd imagine that there's not a lot of us that are praying the way that we've seen Paul exemplify. And when we do, the consistency isn't always, but it's rarely. Some of us may rarely pray, and others of us, when we do pray, rarely pray anything that was close to what Paul exemplifies for us. So to sum that up, I think that it's safe to say that the vast majority of Christianity's prayer life is nearly the complete opposite of what we just saw Paul lay out in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're not thanking, we're asking. We're not even asking about others, we're asking about ourselves. We're not even asking about ourselves in relation to eternal things, we're asking about ourselves as it, as it relates to temporal things. And when we do pray, which for a lot of us isn't typically often, it isn't, it isn't often that we pray. And when we pray like Paul, it's even less often, if ever. And so I lay all of that out because our prayer life tells us a whole lot about where our hearts are at. See, that's where we catch ourselves. We thought we were just doing good praying And then I hit you with that. Our prayer life tells us a whole lot about our hearts, and it tells us about where our focus is in life. It tells us about what we care about. It tells us about who we care about. And listen, I don't want anybody to think that I'm saying that we should never pray for the temporal things, and we should never ask God for anything that has to do with ourselves. That's not what I'm saying. Like last week, God is our Father. He truly cares about every single thing that's going on in your life to the point that Hebrews 4.15 teaches us that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He's saying God cares about what we're going through and because of that, verse 16 Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I never want us to forget that. But I also don't want us to forget the way God inspired Paul to say something similar in Philippians chapter 4 in verse 6. Because here's how he says it there, and I want you to observe how, how, how how God inspired Paul to say it. Be careful for nothing. Or don't be full of care and worried about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. I just said that supplication word a minute ago. Again, it's making requests to God about whatever's going on in your life. He says, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. What's that next one? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made to God. Do you see that? 
God's saying, I want to hear everything that's on your heart, no matter how big or no matter how small. But when you're expressing those concerns and when you're making those petitions and those requests to me and making supplication, do it with thanksgiving. And that's the example that Paul sets for us in 1 Thessalonians 1 in verse 2. God wants us to make our petitions made known unto him but Paul sets an example for us when he prays and, and we see that he was, he was thankful. He was thankful for and praying for people and not just for their physical needs, but for their spiritual needs. His focus was on the eternal, not the temporal. And this was included every time he prayed, not just once in a while. Our prayer life tells us a lot about where our hearts are at. But Paul was thankful for the church of the Thessalonians. And, and he was thankful for specific things that he describes in verse 3 that they were modeling. Not, not only for those that were in Macedonia and in, 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 uh, in Achaia that was somewhat close by, but everywhere, according to verse 8. And, and here's what Paul, Paul was thankful for, the, the characteristics of the church. That's number two on your outline. Paul was thankful for the characteristics of the church of the Thessalonians. And so I want us to see these characteristics with the way that Paul describes this model church for us. And again, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3 so that we can see, so that we can see these characteristics one more time. And he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Okay, so, he, so here's what's described, here's what described and here's what defined this model church at Thessalonica. A work of faith, a labor of love, and patience of hope. And, and, and this isn't the only time we see this whole deal of faith, hope, and love. This isn't the first time and only time that we see these clump together in the, in the Bible. I, I want you to take a look with me at 1 Corinthians 13, 13. This is Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, and, and he's just finished the part of the passage about charity that we've probably all read at weddings a, a time or two. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. And in the last verse of the chapter, he's kind of putting a bow on all of that, and he says in 1 Corinthians 13, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, faith, hope, and charity. Charity is similar to love. It's love perfected. And, and faith, hope, and love have sometimes been referred to, sometimes we call them the, the triad of Christian virtues. We, we see this together a good bit. So in this verse, what God does is, is he's essentially given us his big three. These are, these are the big three, church. And what God does here is he, he takes these three things and he he purposely puts them in a category all to themselves in terms of their significance and in terms of their importance. And then we come along to 1 Thessalonians 1.3. And God gives us a description of a model church and he describes them as being a church characterized by faith, hope, and love. And, and, and interestingly enough, I believe that what's actually happening in 1 Thessalonians 1 is that verses 9 and 10 of this same chapter are actually describing for us 
what that actually looks like, this work of faith, this labor of love, in this patience of hope. It's, it's, it's almost as if God is providing his own commentary on what that looks like. And, and here's how those things are described. Check this out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. Here's what he, here's what he says, and here's what I believe it, he's, he's using these verses to describe what he's saying here in verse 3. So start verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Okay, so that's where God is laying out this summary of what a work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope actually looks like okay so let's let's dive in first let's look at what characterized this model church and let's look at what paul describes as this church's work of faith work of faith we can read all that all day long but if it doesn't make sense to us we're, we're probably not going to get too far what in the world is a work of faith and, and what we saw in the middle of verse 9 of first thessalonians 1 is that they turned to god from idols Okay, that, that was their work of faith that he's talking about here in verse 3. They turned to God from idols. Okay, so in response to their faith, there was a work and there was an action and there was a work that was turning to God from idols. Man, you talk about a radical transformation here. The church of the Thessalonians was full of a bunch of idol worshipers. I mean, you can imagine how radical this must have been at this time. But by God's grace, these brothers and sisters, they were confronted with the truth of the gospel in the midst of that, and their eyes were opened and they got saved. But their faith caused there to be works in their lives. Now, listen, your works don't have the power to save and even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64, 6. But it's like, as others have said before, you do as you believe, the rest is just talk. The faith of the Thessalonian church, which is a model church for us, it produced good works. And so should we. And what happened was they turned from something and they turned to something. Do you see that? They turned from idols but not as a means to an end they turn from idols to god and what i'm afraid of is is that there could be people here this morning that are trying to do one or the other without doing both the work of faith that this model church exemplified for us is a church that turned from their sinful ways that they were involved in prior to coming to faith in christ and turned to god and my fear is, is that there could be some of us that got saved, but there was never much of a turning from a whole lot of stuff. And, and that some of us never really turned from our sinful ways, and instead of turning from our sinful ways into God, we've just tried to add God onto our lives. We, we took that insurance policy that we got, and we escaped hell, but we hung on to a lot of the sin that almost sent us there. 
God says, what was characteristic of what I've called the church to be, though, is a body of believers who have turned from that sin. Not a group that's just attempted to add Jesus onto their lives, and now we come to church on Sunday and read the Bible a couple times a week. No, a group of people who have experienced a definite turn from their sin. And, and then there could be others of us, and, and we got saved, and we turned away from a lot of sin. Some turned from drugs and from alcohol and sexual sin and watching things on the TV and the internet that they shouldn't be watching. And man, that's a wonderful thing, and that's a freeing thing to escape the bondage of those things. But then one day... There, there are people that woke up and they started adding a bunch of things to that list that they believe people should turn from that they inexplicably don't have a verse for. And next thing you know, they're coming up with a requirement for the clothing that someone should wear on a Sunday morning. A style that didn't even exist when God implemented the church. It would just so happen. And next thing you know, they're following a bunch of man-made rules and a bunch of man-made regulations about what kind of instruments you can play in a church again there's not a verse in sight but these things become a standard for righteousness and if man is making up the standards instead of god then who is it that you actually turned to when you got saved they've turned from a lot and a lot of good things to turn from too and they have bible to back some of those up but they've turned from a lot but they haven't turned to god you're returning to a man, a man-made set of rules that's rooted in legalism and rooted in pride. But that's not what the church of the Thessalonians did. They turned from their sinful ways, and they didn't turn to a man-made set of rules. They turned to God. The model church's example wasn't an either-or. It was a both-and, both turning from sin and turning to God. The second thing that Paul says characterized this model church in Thessalonica is their letter B, labor of love. And man, this is a phrase that I'm sure we're all familiar with. Obviously, this is a term that we all use, right? You, again, you didn't realize where it originated. Here it is. This is, this is the spot, labor of love. We use, the, we use this all the time, man. And if you've been a parent, I can rest assured you have used this term in your life, if you're a parent, it's, it is a great definition for it. It's a love beyond what you could possibly imagine. And then once you're in the middle of it, you're like, holy smokes, this is a lot of work. <laughs> this is a lot of labor. It is a boy, but it is a labor of love. And of course, no one labors more than the wife. No, no pun intended. But, but nobody, it's a labor, though, of love, right? But do you know what love causes you to do? It causes you to labor. That's just how this thing of love works. Laboring goes hand in hand with love. You remember how Jesus said it in, for, in John 14, 21? In John 14, 21, he said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Can you imagine it with your spouse if they don't ever behave in ways that please you? They live their life doing the opposite of what makes you happy. And then at the end of each night before they, you go to bed, I love you, babe. You'd be like, no, no, you actually don't. <laughs> is, that how you, that's, is that how you ladies would say it? Something like, something like that. No, you don't. 
<laughs> my wife would never say it that way. I'm just talking about everybody else. My <laughs> She's like, I'm sitting over here innocently, and here I'm getting the butt of the joke. Okay. It would crawl all over you, wouldn't it? And Jesus feels the same way. If we love him, it will manifest itself in the way that we labor. It will manifest itself in what we do. And this labor of love is one of the characteristics that define this model church. And again, I believe God's describing to us what it looked like even more specifically in verse 9 of this same chapter. So look there again with me, if you will, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, where they describe what this labor of love, where Paul describes what this labor of love looks like. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols, what's next, to serve the living and true God. You know what the labor of love looked like? It looked like serving the living and true God. That's what they did. They served the living and true God. And, and of course, the living and true God is in contrast to the idols that they were previously worshiping because those idols certainly weren't alive like our risen Savior is, and they certainly weren't true gods. But, but do you see what that laboring thing was all about? Do you, do you see what it looked like? It looked a whole lot like serving. That, that's what the labor was, according to verse 9. They were serving the living and true God. And I think most of us are actually okay with the idea of serving. I mean, we have actually kind of glamorized serving just a, li just a little bit. I mean, philanthropic labor is, is cool. No one's going to think less of you if you serve at a soup kitchen or something like that. And, and they shouldn't. They'll, in fact, they'll brag on you and pat you on the back and and praise you for that. And that is a great thing. And I, and I think most of us are okay with the labor of love being connected to serving when it's like that. But here's the disconnect for a lot of people. Luke 16 and verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. And what gets us all messed up with this thing of serving the living and true God is when it's connected to having a master. We're cool with that glamorized version of it, but the biblical version of it, where you're serving your master, that hits a little different, doesn't it? And you know what serving our master really is? It goes back to what we talked about last week. It goes back to that thing of lordship. Who's going to be lord? Who's going to be master? Who's going to be king? Who's going to sit on the throne and call the shots? Who are we going to serve? The church at Thessalonica knew they were servants that were to serve their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how Paul describes their labor of love. Love was the motivating factor. And when love is the motivating factor and you've truly fallen in love with the person of Jesus Christ, it doesn't typically feel like what we think of when we think of labor or we think of serving or we think of even having a master because everything you're laboring to do is a labor of love. 
And like it is with other labors of love in our lives, such as children, as challenging as it is sometimes, you wouldn't have it any other way. That's how it is serving the Lord when we love Him. Sure, there are times it's not easy, but it's worth it. It's worth it because of love, and you couldn't imagine doing anything else. And I'd like us to to see another way that this labor of love and serving the living and true God manifests itself. Here's what it looks like in the only other place in the Bible that the phrase labor of love is used, which is Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. It says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Okay, so here we see this labor of love that was shown towards God manifested itself as ministering to the saints. Saints are are believers in Jesus Christ. So this labor of love that we see in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 1, which is described as serving the living and true God in verse 9 of the same chapter, most definitely is about serving God as Master and Lord, just like we saw but it's also connected to ministering to the saints. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see that that was characteristic of this model church in Thessalonica. They ministered to each other. They served each other, and by doing so, they served the Lord. Part of having a biblical labor of love was serving and ministering to each other, and that's how a body of Christ functions, y'all. We all work together to accomplish the mission, serving and ministering to each other in this local body. It can look like a lot of things. It can look like discipleship, investing the Word of God into another believer in in hopes of establishing them in the faith and in the work of the ministry. It can look like a, a greeting team. It can look like serving in the nursery. It can look like the worship team or the choir It can look like cleaning. It can look like Awana. It can look like tech and AV. So if you're currently not serving, I'd like to encourage you to do so. I can't help it. The Bible took me there. It wasn't wasn't my fault. This is what I'm saying. I didn't pick where we go. This is just where we go. But there's a lot of shapes that it can take. This this body of Christ in, in Thessalonica was laboring in love, serving the living and true God and their master and Lord, and they were serving and ministering to each other as well. And and, and here's how it shakes out for those of us that love God. Okay, this this encapsulates this whole thing. Are you ready? 1 Corinthians 8.3 But if any man love God, the same is known of him. If we love God, everybody else knows it. And you know how they know? Because of how we labor and how we serve. Because of how we act. Do others know that you love God? Is that characteristic of your life? Are you known for that? We can be known for a lot of things. But are you known? But is it known that you love God? Because if the people that are around us don't know that about us, according to this verse, 
probably the case that we don't love him. It doesn't say it doesn't say that people know that you go to church. It says that people know that you love God. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. So it's not hard to conclude that if we are known by the people that are around us as a man or a woman that loves God, it's because we don't really love him. We may like him a lot, but we don't love him. Can I ask us to evaluate where we're at on that this morning? The next characteristic I'd like for us to see that was part of what defined this model church at Thessalonica and, and what, was, what was what Paul was so thankful for is their patience of hope. Let her see their patience of hope. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 again, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the church of the Thessalonians was characterized by having a patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we see patience connected to hope, and that hope is connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that in that verse? Now look with me again at verses 9 and 10 of this chapter where we find our commentary on what a, what, what a patience of hope looks like because this may be the most hard concept to understand as to the way that these, this model church of Thessalonica was described. I want you to, to see how, how it's described though in verse, starting in verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols. We saw that. To serve the living and true God, we covered that. Now here's the commentary on the Thessalonians having patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. This verse is talking about the return of the Lord. It's talking about waiting for the day that we're raptured off of this planet and that we meet Jesus in the air. So the patience of hope that the Thessalonians had in our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3 has to do with waiting for his return according to verse 10. And I want us to see how all of that comes together because I recognize the fact that that in, on its face doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so we're going we're gonna to dive in to see how that comes together. And in order to do that, we need to see how Paul is using this word hope. The way that the word hope is being used here, it's actually a very consistent way that the Bible uses the word hope. It, it, it's, it's different than we commonly use it today. So I, I want us to define it biblically so that we can understand what the Bible means when it's referring to this hope, patience of hope for the Lord's return. And it's, I'll, I'll give us a little definition of it. It's a simple definition we'll take from just two verses just to try to give us a little clarity about this thing of hope and, and that simple definition is desire and assurance desire and assurance and we understand that, that of course the bible is a self-defining book we go to the bible to define our terms otherwise somebody else is defining the bible for us so i'm going to show you how i came up with that the first verse i want us to look at in order to do that is proverbs thirteen twelve. Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred maketh the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. Okay, so we see hope here is associated with desire. Now hang with me, and I, I think this will help you understand this idea 
in the Bible. Hope is associated with desire. In fact, if you take a closer look at it, the words are actually used synonymously in this verse. And I know that doesn't require a whole lot of explanation because that's how we typically think of hope when we think of hope. If we hope for something or we desire something or we're anticipating or longing for something, usually that desire, anticipation, or longing is for something that may not happen or for something in the future that's uncertain. And there are certainly places in the Bible where it is used exactly that way. But in many places, especially in the New Testament and where we're studying in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, the concept of hope, it takes on a little bit of a different meaning. For example, Hebrews 6.11 says that we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end okay so throughout much of the bible our hope isn't just something that we're desiring it's not just something we're anticipating it's something that we have just as this verse says full assurance in a full assurance of hope it's something we have confidence in it's something that we're expecting it's not something that we're hoping for and desiring that may or may not happen so, so if we summed it up, the biblical definition of hope in a simple way, we could say that biblically hope is desire and assurance. We're desiring or, or anticipating something that's promised and something that we're assured of. Another way we could say it is that biblically hope in many places is a, is a combination of anticipation and expectation. It's not the, oh man, I, I hope so. I, I, it, it, I hope it doesn't rain today. You know, I hope the baby does. I hope the baby sleeps through the night. I hope, you know, I, I hope the, I hope the Falcons win the Super Bowl. <laughs> you know, I got to pick on the Falcons because I can't pick on the Braves or the Dogs anymore. Like, I mean, what, the Falcons are about the only thing I got left. That's really, man. That's that's man. I can't wait till next year. Something's got Something's got to change. No. <laughs> I, you know, but that's something that we're, we we're hoping for that has more to do with a strong desire for something that we're wishing, but we have no guarantee actually will happen. And again, throughout much of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that's not the biblical concept of hope. And we need to understand that because biblically, though hope is still connected to strong desire and anticipation it's connected to, have strong, to having strong desire and in anticipation for something that we have complete confidence in and complete assurance in. And in this case, we're talking about Jesus coming back. So we're not talking about, oh man, I hope one day he will actually come back. But it's, it's starting to look a little iffy out there. No, when we talk about our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and we talk about his return, we're talking about our understanding and our conviction that God wants all of us going through this life desiring and anticipating that Christ is coming back while having the full assurance and confidence that he will. Paul said at the end of Titus chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and it's exactly what we were just singing about and we didn't plan it that way but it it it, it says that, that we should live in this present world verse 13 
that we should look for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. He calls it our blessed hope because we, all, we have all the confidence and assurance in the world that it's just as certain as if it's already happened. And he wants us to be looking for it and he wants us to desire it. He wants us to anticipate it. So that's the kind of hope that the church at Thessalonica, that's the kind of hope that they had in Christ's return. They had a great desire for it to happen and they had complete confidence that it would happen. But while we're desiring it and anticipating it, while having complete confidence that he will return, verse 3 teaches us that we're to have patience in the midst of that. We're to have a patience of hope. Okay, we spent a decent time understa- a decent bit of time understanding the, the hope element of this verse, but, but I want us to consider what God is trying to teach us through him inspiring Paul, Silas, and Timothy to refer to the Thessalonians as having patience of hope. They didn't just have hope, they had patience of hope. And, and I believe God gives us some insight into what he's trying to teach us through Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And here's what he says. Wherefore, seeing we, are all, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Put aside all that trash that's weighing us down and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. There's that patience thing we're talking about. We need to have patience as we run this race of life and fulfill the mission that God gave us. And look at what's next. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Listen, Jesus is the author of our faith. It only begins by him and through him, his sacrifice on the cross, and it only by his grace. He's the author, but he's also the finisher. Because, because after this life is over, y'all, Jesus is waiting for us at the finish line of this race of life, and he'll be, given, he'll be giving us bodies incapable of sinning there and will forever be with the Lord, so he'll finish what he started when he saved us. He's the finisher of our faith. So as we're running our race with patience to fulfill the mission that God gave us, we're to look to Jesus, and we're to do what he did, it says. And here's what he did. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know how Jesus was able to endure the cross and all of the things that came with it? With patience of hope. That's how he did it. Jesus was able to run his race with patience because he was looking to a day in the future and he was hoping for that day in the future and was looking to the joy that was set before him that day. Jesus patiently endured being brutally beaten on the cross for the joy that was set before him, the the joy of restoring lost man to himself and sitting down and being reunited with God at his right hand. That's patience 
of hope. And, and so just like Jesus, as we're running our race of life to fulfill the mission that God gave to us, we're to do it with patience. We're patient when things don't go our way. We're patient when we're persecuted and we're criticized for our beliefs. We're patient when others, even others inside this local body of Christ, mistreat us. We're patient when God doesn't answer our prayers the way that we had planned. We're patient in the midst of any circumstance that can be thrown our way. And we're patient because of hope. We're patient in those circumstances and situations because of that blessed hope. We're patient because we're running the race that God has for us and we're looking ahead and we're not getting bogged down with all the distractions because we have hope, meaning we're looking for and strongly desiring and have complete assurance in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And we're looking to that day and we're hoping for that day. And when we look to that day, we can have patience because like Jesus, we have joy that's set before us. The day that we see Jesus face to face, the day that we have eternal reward for our work here on earth, the day that anything that we went through in this life while ministering the name of Jesus Christ will all be worth it. That's having patience of hope. And that's what was characteristic of this model church at Thessalonica. And then if that isn't motivating enough, God throws in a couple more reminders and, and motivators. Number three on your outline, the reminders for the redeemed. The reminders for the redeemed at the end of verse three and in verse four, while, while the, the church of the Thessalonians, they're being commended for their work of faith, labor of love and patience of hope. He throws in a couple reminders and motivators for him. And that in letter A, we see that your father is watching. Your father is watching. Look at, look at the end of verse 3. It says that they did all of these things and they had all of these characteristics. Work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And they did it in the sight of of God and our Father. Your Father is watching. Paul says, all these things that you're doing for the Lord, you're doing them in His sight. And man, isn't that a wonderful thing when you're doing the right thing? Is there anything better than having, the only thing better than having a good game when you're playing sports is having a good game when Dad's watching. Is it, you, know, you know what I mean? When dad catches you doing the right things around the corner, peeking around the corner, instead of mistreating your little sister, you're, you're treating her nice, right? That's, that, there's, nothing, there's nothing better than dad catching you doing the right things. But, but this reminder that God our Father is watching, it, it, it's encouraging if your life is characterized by a work of faith, a labor of love, and patience of hope. It's the exact opposite, though, if that's not the case, if that's not characteristic of your life, because the worst thing in the world is to see the look on your father's face when he catches you doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing. That's, that's the worst thing. So the fact that our father's watching, man, that can either be a great encouraging thing or that can be a really scary thing. Proverbs 5 and verse 21 says it like this. 
For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. Ooh, have you ever let that one soak in for just a minute? God's watching all that's going down, going on down here, and he's pondering these decisions that are being made and these things that are being done and these things that people are doing. Proverbs 15, 3 says it like this. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Listen, God our Father is watching. Is that an encouraging thing for you or is that a scary thing for you? For the Thessalonians, this was an encouraging thing. It was also a great reminder and a motivator. Another reminder for the redeemed we find is in verse 4. It is, is letter B, your election of God. Your election of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And listen, man, we do not have the time this morning to lay out a complete rebuttal for a common view of this passage in a common way that this verse is interpreted dealing with this thing of election. So I won't have a whole lot of time this morning to lay out much of what it doesn't mean, but I will tell you what I believe it does mean when you keep it in context and you compare Scripture with Scripture. Again, I won't have time to do it justice for time's sake this morning and for our purposes of this study, but there, there are things that God has elected. We need to understand that. But God, God, God has elected and chosen not who would and wouldn't be saved, but God has elected and chosen how salvation would be accomplished and that those that are saved would accomplish it. Okay, so God elected and chose, for example, that in the church age that we're living in, that we would be saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, and that we would be placed in Christ. And as a result of that, God elected that those who are saved would follow after him in righteousness and obedience, in service. God refers to the elect mostly when talking about the Israelites. The, the Israelites that God also called the elect, they keep in mind, these elect weren't all saved. This whole elect nation wa wasn't comprised of individuals that were all saved, but that nation had been elected for a particular service, though, hadn't they? They, hadn't, they weren't all saved. They hadn't been elected to salvation, but they were elected to a particular service. They were the nation through which the Savior would come and the vehicle through which God would shine his light to the world in the Old Testament. And though the promises to Israel are still intact, after the Jews rejected and crucified their Savior, the church ultimately became the vehicle through which God would shine his light to the world now. That's our election of God. How we'd be saved and how we'd serve him after salvation. And Paul reminds them and he reminds us that this is what we've been called to. This is what we've been elected to. We're the group of people that was saved by grace through faith and placed in Christ. No other group can say that that has ever lived. And now is the vehicle through which God is going to shine his light through the world just like that Old Testament elect nation of the nation of Israel did. 
And that's a great reminder and a motivator for us to realize God's plan in electing and saving us by grace through faith and placing us in him to minister to the world. We're the vehicle. All right, now we've, we've covered a, a, a decent bit of ground here this morning, and I've blitzed you with a whole bunch of stuff. And I've gone longer than I wanted to go, but I had to finish that verse. <laughs> but man, there's so much to glean from this, from this, these few verses and this model church that we see laid out. But, but, but I want to ask you again, going circling back around, what's your prayer life like? Is it consistent and does it consistently include thanking God, not just for things, but for people and not just the temporal, but the eternal? What about your work of faith? How, how, how does that look? Your labor of love, your patience of hope. Is that characteristic of your life? Our Father's watching, y'all. And we're the vehicle that's on this planet during this period of time that's intended to shine his light to the world. Let's follow the example of this model church. Jesus, we love you. And we, uh, man, we, we thank you for the example of this church. What an example they are to us. What an example they've been to the countless people throughout, throughout the centuries. And God, I pray that we would, we would learn from them. I believe that you that you inspired your word, it's perfect, and that there is a special application to this group of people that are living in this period of time. And I pray, God, that we would take seriously the things that we find in this model church, that we would exemplify these things as the body of Christ, as this particular local body of Christ, God. May we, may we follow this example that we've seen demonstrated for us in this church at Thessalonica. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the way that you used them in all throughout these years. And we love you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we